Hello, and welcome to Ben Yo Chats. If you're curious about the world, this show is for you. How should we understand Chinese cuisine? On this episode, I speak to Fuchsia Dunlop. Fuchsia trained as a cook in China and as an award-winning food writer. We chat on the history, philosophy, and culture of Chinese food. The cuisine and culture is vast, and we discuss much of what is misunderstood, her origin dish, and what restaurant she would magic to London. Hope you enjoy the show. Do like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast. And with that, here's my chat with Fuchsia. Hey everyone, I'm super excited to be speaking to Fuchsia Dunlop. Fuchsia has a new book out, Invitation to a Banquet. Fuchsia is one of the most extraordinary writers on Chinese cuisine and culture I know. You'll understand more about Chinese culture from her book than I think almost any other book on China. Welcome. Hi, very good to be here. So what would be your origin food story or recipe, the dish that explains a part of the story of your life? I'll tell you mine first so you can have a little think. So for me, it's probably chicken rice or it's sometimes called Hainanese chicken rice. And the dish was probably adapted from a poached chicken dish in Hainan, a kind of Wenchang chicken, because in Hainan at the time, they didn't have what we think of as chicken rice. And the immigrant diaspora from 100 over years ago went to Southeast Asia, Malaysia and Singapore, where my parents come from. My my father's from Malaysia, my mum from Singapore. And they met in London. And now this is the dish we now cook as chicken rice. And it's travelled. And we still use um, a poached chicken, although we can do it with steamed chickens as well. Uh, And my mother particularly... Um, when we started eating the dish, really likes to use a corn-fed chicken. So it's a different kind of chicken adapted to how we are today. And it appeals to us because there's kind of no food wasted. You have uh, the nose-to-tail aspects. You have a wonderful broth as well as the rice um, and the chicken. And we'd eat with growing up probably almost once a week on on a kind of Sunday as as often a, um, a, a substitute for the traditional Sunday roast. So that was kind of our way of being in kind of London and having a connection to where we're from. So what would your origin food dish be? Well, can it be a Chinese origin dish? Yeah. As in not the whole lot, because I've been interested in food since I was born, practically. (laughs) (laughs) And I've been very keen on cooking since I was a child. But but there's one dish that um, is very dear to me that sort of expresses partly why I fell in love with Sichuanese food, and that's yu xiang qiezi, fish fragrant aubergine or eggplant. And I think... um, when I went to live in Sichuan in 1994, um, what was so impressive was that the local food was unlike anything I'd had in England. And it was all very fresh and healthy and all these seasonal vegetables and amazing flavors. Um, and that's the thing about Sichuanese cuisine, that it's all about the art of mixing flavors. And um, so this particular dish for me just represents the sort of I mean, it's made with um, pickled red chilies, ginger, garlic, spring onion, a bit of sweet and sour. And then you have the sumptuous kind of golden butteriness of the aubergines. And um, so it's a really homely dish with cheap ingredients. And it's sensational. And um, and this is, you know, Sichuan, everyone thinks mala, naming and ho, lots of chili and Sichuan pepper. But actually, it has this kind of melodious heat, heat with a hint of sweetness. And it's just conjuring up this complex flavor from a few, you know, limited palette of seasonings. And um, and I think that's one of the things that I fell in love with with Sichuanese food. That um, reflects on the 
couple of things in your book and actually in a lot of your work. Uh, so one is the kind of vegetable heavy nature of actually a lot of uh, Chinese cuisine because a lot of people think of the, you know, the banquets and maybe the roast meats, which came from Cantonese cooking um, over here. But actually a lot of it um, was vegetable heavy. And the other thing, I guess, is that you, you tend not to eat sort of a single dish in isolation. You will always have uh, a comparison dish, like some sort of rice or noodles or, or something like that. So when you eat your dish, how would you, uh, what would you pair it with? Um, and are you generally vegetable heavy in terms of how you're thinking about food? Well, um, yes, I mean, that dish you would always have with, um, with like, something else and rice. So because it's a vegetable, you'd probably have something with protein in it. So maybe some tofu or some, you know, chicken, maybe, maybe something like, um, you know, you could have dry fried chicken could be quite nice, a different sort of texture and a different sort of heat um, um, and plain steamed rice. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's another thing that, um, you know, there are many slightly weird and crazy Western stereotypes about Chinese food. And um, the most baffling of all is this idea that Chinese food is unhealthy. Um, and of course, this derived from the fact that for most Westerners, for a very long time, Chinese food was kind of takeaway food. And, um, and it was all, you know, tremendously popular, but um, mainly fried, you know, deep fried, stir fried, not very many vegetables or soups. Um, and, and actually, as I'm sure you know very well, I mean, you know, there is no other culture probably that um, puts as much emphasis on the link between diet and health, the inseparable link between diet and health as the Chinese. And this has been going on for 2000 years and more. And um, so, yes, I mean, one thing that I'm always terribly keen to emphasize in my writing is that Chinese food is not only delicious, but it's really feel-good food. And if you know how to sort of cook simple home dishes and how to assemble a menu, um, it's both satisfying to the senses and really balanced. And that's what it's all about. Um, and so, yes, I mean, like everyone these days, I'm very aware of the terrible environmental disaster that we're facing and um, the need to eat much less meat and dairy foods and try to bring, you know, just put the emphasis on, on vegetables. And I think that, um, um, you know, Chinese cuisine is just a treasure house of inspirations for anybody who's looking to reduce the amount of meat in their diet. And certainly with me, I mean, I just, I can't really live without vegetables. You know, I crave the simple blanched or stir fried leafy greens that are part of almost every Chinese meal. And I just actually feel quite uncomfortable if a day or two goes by without having lots of vegetables. So... Well, my mum feels really uncomfortable uh, when if she goes a few days without eating rice. And actually, that's quite true uh, of a lot of my family um, back in Asia. And also the link of health and diet. Uh, my mum has slowly persuaded me over the years or over this link. She'd always say, oh, you've got to eat such and such a food. You know, you're too hot, you're too cold. And I'm like, having grown in the Western side of the tradition, all oh, that kind of rubbish. And now, particularly, you know, when I'm feeling have a cold or something like that, uh, my mum's uh, congee rice porridge, soupy rice type of dishes are like, oh, that is exactly what I crave um, and I feel better. And the other element, I guess, when I explain to a lot of my friends who, who grew up here, riffing on a couple of your earlier things, is uh, soupy rice is often very bland. It doesn't have to be. You can have toppings. But this blandness as, as a contrast 
is really important. So like having rice at the sort of end of the meals as well as your, as, as your vegetables. Um, and that's something they don't quite get. And then the other thing is often, I guess the translation is mouthfeel, a kind of texture. So my mum and I, you know, we like knuckles and bones and we have all of these kind of gloopy bits. And often some dishes, the joy isn't in the flavour. It might be kind of very bland to certain palates, but the joy is kind of in the mouthfeel. And, and that combination I still find is something that um, isn't so well um, understood. Uh, did it take you a kind of a while to appreciate that? I guess a lot of the recipes, um, when you look at them in the original, talk about mouthfeel or the kind of mouthfeel that you should be expecting in a recipe. Yeah, it certainly took me a long time because I think like most Westerners, I grew up with a relatively limited range of textures in my food. <laughs> so, you know, crisp and soft and, you know, crunchy, but not slithery and bouncy and, um, and you know, with a high grapple factor, as my father always says, the sort of very intricate parts like sort of chicken's feet and so on. So I was brought up to be very pliant and to eat everything that I was given. And so when I went to China, I did that. And I would eat out with Chinese friends and there would be um, goose intestines for the hot pot or tripe and so on. And for a long time, I mean, you know, probably a few years, I would eat these things politely but without really any pleasure. And I would just kind of think, what's the point? <laughs> and then I don't know what happened. I mean, I guess it was just through exposure and through eating with lots of enthusiastic Chinese people. But um, I have come to really appreciate this extra dimension of gastronomy and I love it. I mean, I just found that I was ordering slithery things myself and then, and now I think the texture and the, the sort of, I mean, I think Chinese palates really appreciate complexity of texture. So things that are very soft, but then a little bit crunchy or, you know, a very soft lion's head meatball with crisp water chestnut in it, or a goose intestine, which is so smooth and slippery, and then it's a bit resistant to the bites in the end. And so I, I now really enjoy these kind of playful, flirtatious, unexpected, contrasting textures. Um, and I've made it, and, and I do think that um, for foreigners, if you want to really appreciate Chinese food, this incredible cuisine, you don't have to appreciate texture because there are so many other delicious dishes that don't require it. But if you want to be able to kind of um, experience it all and to eat on a kind of equal basis of appreciation with Chinese friends, then it's, you, you really need to open your mind and palate to texture because it's so important. But the interesting thing is because I've written about this and talked about it a lot because I find it fascinating, and it's also really funny because so many of the words we use in English to describe these textures sound really disgusting. <laughs> so it's kind of a fun, you know, slightly unexpected, uncomfortable subject. Um, but I found that um, I've had quite a lot of messages from readers um, who have said that after reading the chapter in the previous book about Charlottesville and Citroën Pepper about, um, about texture and mouthfeel, that something kind of clicked and for the first time they actually kind of realized that you could eat certain ingredients mainly for the pleasure of texture like jellyfish I mean it has no flavor but then and so once you've kind of opened your mind nearly to the possibility then you can start to sort of play with it and I've done some events you know I've done some talks where I've taken along a whole load of pig's ear 
you know, strips or dark's tongues and talked about texture and then got everyone to taste them. And it's just a really interesting experience for most Westerners because it, it's, just the, it, it's just trying to eat these things with a different mindset to put away all your prejudices and the, the deeply ingrained idea that there's no point in eating them because there's no meat and just try to just like explore the texture in a sensory way. And people find it really fun. Yeah, I, it struck me there was a couple of things out there on reading your previous work and this one. And one was the history of it. So even within British food, I guess it was a nose to tell eating, but you would have eaten these textural foods more often, although more highly flavored. And I wonder whether it's something to do with the stories you are told around it, the kind of, I guess, almost cultural value that you're also eating at it. Or like you say, your mind is open to it. I, I remember reading, I never tasted it, but um, uh, Heston Boomental, who's a famous sort of British chef who does kind of some molecular gastronomy type recipes as well. He kind of did a deconstructed fish and chips where he sprayed the sort of smell of salt because there's a adage within uh, British food that it always tastes better at the seaside. And I think a lot of that is to do with the experience and the stories that you had and things that you're growing up. And I wonder with texture whether it's the same. So when you're open to the story and you've heard the really long tradition about why we would be interested in texture and you're attuned to it, it kind of opens up a, a, another form of, a, of appreciation for it, which if you don't have that story or, or the way that s sits in that. And one of the great things I found in reading your um, book is just a long history of so many of the stories about where the techniques come from, where the recipes come from. And some of them are sort of newer stories, right? They don't always stretch back 2000 years. They may stretch back earlier. Um, and I was wondering how conscious you are about when you eat something about its history and its food and, and how much that is part of the pleasure that people get. Um, I think it is part of the pleasure. And, and I mean, specifically, so many Chinese dishes have little stories about them and legends about emperors and scholars and servants and how the dish was invented. And um, some of them are clearly just made up for fun. I mean, they're not really historical. Um, but they still, they're part of the character of a dish. Um, and more importantly, yes, I think it is. I mean, it, like this is Song's fish soup, fish stew, um, Song Sao Yu Gung, which is one of the dishes that I write about in the book. I mean, that is a dish that goes back to, is it the 12th or 13th century, to the Song dynasty. And, um, you know, there's written mention of it um, going, you know, in historic records. And it's rather a fantastic feeling that the, there's this kind of continuity. Um, yeah. And um, but I think mo more than anything for me is just sort of recognizing that this is a very great gastronom gastronomic culture in which food has been thought about and written about and considered in all kinds of ways for, you know, more than 2,000 years. I mean, really, in, in kind of early Chinese literature, you get these mouth-watering descriptions for food. And then, um, and this goes on through history. And food was something that was worthy of consideration and, you know, literature. <laughs> Um, and also, of course, it was the basis of health and ritual. And I think once you understand that about China, then it completely blows out of the water this kind of another silly Western stereotype, but it, in some ways it's a poverty cuisine. You know, there's this 
traditional Western assumption that the reason you would eat a duck's tongue is because you're desperately poor. But, um, but you know, things like your duck's feet, I mean, duck's feet, goose they're, they're banquet delicacies. <laughs> you know, it's not, um, yes, poor Chinese peasants would eat things in times of famine and they would eat wild plants and like all farmers everywhere, they would try and make the most of an animal they killed. But, you know, rich and powerful people wanted to eat interesting, exotic, um, unexpected delicacies for fun. Like there's this amazing description of a banquet in the 18th century, which I've mentioned several times um, in Yangzhou. Um, and one of the dishes served was a bear's paw surrounded by the tongues of crucian carp. I mean, <laughs> this is a really extravagant dish. I think that's one of the things I got through the book. And I wonder whether the mouthfeel texture element as part of that is this thread of, I, I guess, rarity or also the skill of something that you have to cook. So you, you look at this and go, oh, what can we do with this to make it uh, really great to eat, even if it seems like a slightly strange ingredient? And there's one story which was in uh, your book, which a friend had recounted to you, which actually I remember because it was recounted to me uh, when I was a child. So I think it's probably one of those made up stories, uh, but it was the idea of um, uh, wanting to eat uh, fish cheeks and fish head. And um, so it was presented to me and they were like, wow, we're going to give you the best part of the fish and we'll serve you food because um, you come back uh, to visit us. And they told me the story about how in the olden days, I don't know when this was, you'd have like um, highway robbers of some sort. And if they were to kidnap you or some sort, they would actually serve you a fish. And if you went for the head or the cheek and you disregarded everything else, you were probably a keeper and it was worth um, ransoming you. And if you went for the sort of fins and around that, you might have been more middle class. You might have been worth keeping or not, depending on that. And if you went just for the body, they'd like, well, actually, you would just return to the street. Have a, have a nice fish and, and that's it. And there was something about the rarity of the cheek. But also it had this lovely sort of soft, silky texture as well as being somewhat rare. So there's kind of this intersection about rarity and the exotic, which perhaps I think has been taken a little bit too far, but at least within history, it seemed to be intertwined with those stories. And then, you know, as a sort of five or six year old, being told of these stories gives it a sort of glow. And, you know, later on, when we're out there, it's like, oh, yeah, you want the whole of this prawn head, you know, give the little body to one of your Western friends. They won't appreciate it. Um, my mum has an actual phrase of, I think it literally translates as, they do not know how to eat. So um, you might as well, uh, you might as well do that. And I wonder how you feel about, yeah, that intertwined with the exotic or the techniques that you use and, and where that is today. What do you mean? Well, I guess that, um, you know, do is part of the appreciation of, uh, some of these kind of rare things is the stories that we've been told and that within Chinese cuisine and that perhaps within Western cuisine, we don't have quite the same emphasis on this sort of rarity or, or the stories about how this food has come about. Yeah, well, I, so I would say that, that China is a culture that expands the possibilities of the pleasure of eating in all directions. And so part of that is through using a whole very complex raft of culinary techniques to transform ingredients into many different textures, colors, this sort of thing. 
Um, and it's also in diversity of ingredients. And that's one of the things about China, that it has a huge range of terroirs, of geography, um, with different produce. So you have this extraordinary biodiversity, an immense choice of ingredients. I mean, you know, from the you know, tropical rainforests in the south, Siberian forests and deserts in the north. I mean, the, there are so many different things you can eat. Um, and coupled with this sort of intellectual appreciation of the thrill of eating and of the element of surprise and of using food to honor people. So, you know, if you're having a special Chinese dinner, you want to have dishes that will make people go, wow, which will excite them and thrill them. And this might be, um, you know, some very hyper seasonal ingredient that, you know, maybe it's the new bamboo shoots of the season, which are just perfect. Maybe it's some kind of fish that is only around for a couple of months a year. Um, but also exotica, you know, unusual things. Um, so, you know, that might be, as you just mentioned, like the cheek of a fish. And I mentioned in the book this incredible dish made with multitudes of fish cheeks, which I was was um, was presented with once. Um, and also, um, yeah, and I, I don't think, I mean, to a certain extent, this is present in Western gastronomy. So we have, you know, rare and precious things like, you know, caviar was always something very expensive and exotic. Smoked salmon used to be until it was cheap sort of farm stuff. And, and I think particularly particularly in the West, you have that sort of association actually with wines. So like a rare vintage wine has that kind of cachet. But in China, you know, food has that place, um, but not to the extent in China. And I think also in China, there's a long history going back to the Song Dynasty, at least, of dishes that tend to be something they're not. So like there's a famous Sichuanese banquet dish, Ji Dou Hua, which is chicken tofu. And um, so you get presented at the banquet with what looks like a, a cheap street snack, like just silk and tofu in the, the way that it's made in. Um, but actually, it's a laboriously made kind of curd made from pureed chicken's breast, um, which is a luxurious ingredient in a fine banquet stall made from chicken and ham and so on. So it's like a sort of edible joke, a witticism. So that's also part of the thrill. And then, of course, you have the negative aspect, which is, you know, eating um, endangered animals. So things like sharks, fins and bears' paws, which in the past, you know, fair enough. I mean, there weren't that many people who could eat them and um, they were very rare. And, um, you know, but now with this global crisis of biodiversity, um, you know, we really we shouldn't go eating things like this. And um, some of them are illegal now. There are, you know, there's a Chinese wildlife law which is supposed to, you know, ban poaching wild animals. And um, and also, but some of them are perfectly legal, like sharks fins. And um, unfortunately, China is, you know, a, a real center of wildlife trafficking um, of animal, rare animal parts for tables and for medicine prescriptions. And um, I think I'm always very keen to emphasize, firstly, that it, this is a very elite minority thing. The vast majority of Chinese people never eat um, illegal exotica and probably don't eat shark's fin, most of them, never in their whole lives. So it's a kind of minority thing. And also, I think it's really important to get in proportion that, um, you know, we have many problems with what we eat. Like many European chefs serve eel, which is critically endangered, 
Japanese bluefin tuna. And I think that um, the Chinese have received more opprobrium for eating shark's fins than these other categories. And I think that we should all be facing up to our, you know, to to our crimes against the environment. And, and not to mention, actually, you know, the beef industry and its connection with deforestation in the Amazon and terrible pollution and overfishing all over the world. So I think that it's... Um, it's a human problem and not just a Chinese problem. But having said that, I think that this kind of conscious desire to eat rare and illegal things for kicks is the kind of, you know, the the unattractive side of, of Chinese gastronomy. And I hope that people will... Now, I've written in the book, you know, there are so many other things to eat in China which are exciting, exotic for other reasons. Like, you, you really don't have to eat these things anymore. Yeah, I agree. I think... Um, exotic food is now definitely overrated and I certainly don't eat um, anything like shark's fin anymore but also actually uh, I don't eat foie gras like you say I try and avoid eel I'm not sort of dogmatic about it in the sense that if it, if it's served to me already it's like well if it's going to go in the bin then that's even more of a waste but certainly um, there's a sort of ordering of it I wanted to pick up on your uh, comment and because there's a lot of it in the book on um, cooking techniques um, and one of the ones uh, which I'm always astounded that a lot of my Western friends have kind of basically never done, um, is steaming. So I was in university, and I, I remember uh, passing by with a friend of the market, and there were some really beautiful fish. And they said, oh, I wouldn't know what to do with that. I said, oh, that's fine. We'll take it back and we'll steam it. Um, just a couple of chopsticks as a kind of trivet and a plate in a wok with some water, and we'll, and we'll be away. And they were astounded. It, it takes about 10 minutes, and the whole thing... Uh, was done yet most of my friends have essentially never steamed a fish they might have steamed some vegetables maybe in a microwave um, but none done and none of the steaming techniques and I find it's also a very easy technique as well as a quick technique for a lot of a lot of foods um, and I hadn't understood the history of it until reading the book so I was, I was interested in maybe how you came across steaming and what do you think about steaming as a technique today and its history in Chinese cuisine and whether uh, what Westerners should think about what's the first food that maybe they should attempt to steam. <laughs> yeah, well, I suppose, I mean, I find it really fascinating. I mean, I remember when I went to the Banpur Museum near Xi'an, which is a Neolithic settlement museum, and this was years ago, and I was astounded to find among the artifacts in the museum was a pottery steamer from the Neolithic age. So actually, this is, you know, steaming is the most ancient of the really distinctively Chinese cooking methods. Everyone thinks of stir-frying in a wok, but that came much later. Um, so the Chinese, like everyone, you know, as soon as they invented pottery, they were boiling, but they were also steaming. And no one else was doing this to the extent, <laughs> or, or at all, of the Chinese. Um, one example that someone pointed out to me is Moroccan steamed couscous. But that's but, but basically just couscous. I mean, it's not like... In China, you can steam everything. You can steam a fish, a soup, your staple grains, um, your noodles. In Shanxi, they steam their oat noodles. Um, you can you can steam anything really, um, and um, it's a hugely um, versatile method. Um, it's very um, it feels very sort of fresh and healthy. With some things like you know a fish, as you mentioned. A perfect way, you know, you cook it until it's just done and its its flesh is still so juicy and kind of lively. 
Um, and you, you can also steam things for many hours. Like in Sichuan, they have these wonderful dishes where you marinate meat and spices and chili bean paste and you coat them in um, crumbs of rice and you steam them and it has this wonderful sort of comforting texture. Um, so, and, and I think one thing that's very interesting in China is that um, nobody really has ovens. So um, in China, you went from the very archaic cooking methods with open fires and standing pots in open fires and, you know, hanging them over fires to enclosing the fire in a sort of kitchen range um, with um, they were mouths in the side or the back for putting the fuel in and then larger openings in the top where you would put your wok and your steamer. There was no oven. And um, it. this is, I was really surprised when I started researching Chinese food, really. I mean, no one had an oven in their house. Nowadays, people, you know, Western baking is a bit trendy with urbanites, you know, and um, people have some fitted kitchens and stuff. But basically, the oven is not part of a traditional Chinese kitchen. Um, you don't even have an oven in most restaurants. Um, until recently, you know, roasted and baked things, you went to specialists. So you might go to a particular you know, bakery or you know, the people making roast darks and barbecue meat, they would have ovens. And if you wanted to eat roasted things, you you bought them in from these kind of specialists. Um, so I think in many ways, steaming takes the place of the oven um, in Chinese culture. And it's a very economical method. So traditionally, you, you could do something like you could boil a stew and then steam your grain at, on the top. So you'd be using only one lot of fuel. It was like a kind of one pot meal, but a two-storied pot. Um, yeah, so I think um, it's um, it's a cooking method that, um, I, I mean, in the West, when people do steam food, it tends to be at, as a sort of, you know, a very um, consciously healthy minimalist option it's not really about gastronomy but in china it's also about creating amazing flavors um and and the interesting thing is also that it's so basic i mean of course you can have a nice tower of bamboo steamers um but you don't need a steamer i mean you can just put a little trivet in your walk and then put a plate on it and put a lid on it and you have a steamer yeah or you can even put, you know, lay a couple of wooden chopsticks across the base of the wok and balance a plate on that. So you don't, it, you can sort of steam with anything. And um, yeah, I mean, I suppose well, the, back to texture again. That um, that Westerners, they they don't terribly like the texture. Like if you steam a fish, the skin is sort of soft and slippy. Which I love. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if you steam a chicken as well, the skin is sort of floppy. And Westerners, I found, don't particularly like this texture um, at first. You know, people like things to be crisped up. Um, but um, I can't think of any better way, really, to cook a fish. And does it have uh, an origin story within Chinese culture as some god came down and gave steam as in the same way that sort of fire has it? It's a little bit more complicated, is it? I think I think it was the Yellow Emperor. Wasn't it? I did write in the book. I think the Yellow Emperor. He certainly took, taught people how to cook cereals, and I think he taught them both how to make jol congee and to steam the grains as well. Um, and then there's a very um, famous poem in the Book of Songs. This really archaic collection of folk songs. Um, what's it called? Um, I can't remember the name of the poem, but it describes Lord Millet because Millet yeah. was the original kind of sacred grain 
you know, before rice people in the north where Chinese culture sort of coalesced, were eating millet. Um, there's this description of how Khuji, um, Lord Millet, taught people how to grow the grain and to steam it. Um, so, yeah. And actually, mentioning of the soup brings to mind, my, so when my father would always go out when we would eat, he would always order a soup at um, a Chinese meal. And I kind of never really appreciated why it would just happen. And sometimes it was just a very light broth type thing, even with kind of almost one plate meals, you have something to wash, uh, wash down the meal. Uh, but it wasn't really actually until reading your work that I have a full appreciation of that, nor its history, nor the actually sheer variety. I mean, I guess you get this with all Chinese cuisine, that, that when you look into it, the sheer variety is um, kind of mind boggling. Um, but yeah, I'd be interested in how you think about uh, soups today. Are they as important as they've ever been in, in Chinese cuisine? And and what is it maybe that uh, here in the West we haven't appreciated about the soup part of the meal? Yeah, well, in China, I mean, there are two kinds of soup, really, two broad categories, gung and tang. And gung is like a, a stew soup. So it's where you have a pot full of liquid and you have lots of food going, you know, um, usually cut into slivers floating around in it. And this is a, a very interesting dish because it's really the original Chinese dish to go with your rice. Um, and it was a sacred dish. It was offered in sacrifice to the gods. Um, this this gung, this soupy stew, um, was used as a metaphor for the art of government. So ancient writers and philosophers, they talked about um, creating harmonious flavors in the gung, you know, using seasonings. And what they were really talking about was the art of government and balancing different interests. So this gung soup just has this um, this incredible significance and it goes back to the sort of dawn of Chinese civilization. Um, and then the tongue is usually a lighter broth um, and in which bits of food float. Um, and in these kind of soups, often the, the actual ingredients are less important than the liquid. Um, particularly, I think, a particular example is the Cantonese soups. So the Cantonese are brilliant at making these tonic soups with sort of meat or poultry and different herbs and vegetables tailored often to the season. And um, with these soups, um, often um, you basically just eat the broth. I mean, you strain it off and it's all full of the qi, the life force, the nourishment of the ingredients. And you might eat the ingredients, but they're quite exhausted. They're not tasty. The point is the liquid. Um, and I think that um, soup is an absolutely integral part of almost every Chinese meal. I mean, the equivalent of, you know, our English phrase, um, meat and two veg, as a sort of example of what a meal is. Um, in China, tang, which means four dishes and a soup. And um, to a Chinese palate, you need a soup because it refreshes the palate. It's just sort of part of the comfort of the meal. So a meal without soup is, is a bit dry. It's a bit incomplete. And um, so, you know, in different parts of China, the soup may be had first, like Cantonese often have it first. In Sichuan, you have it last. So Sometimes you can just have it on the side of the meal. But Chinese people really need soup in a way that Westerners don't. So, I mean, it's quite interesting. Like if you go to a, noodle, a dumpling restaurant in Beijing, so you can have your boiled jiaozi dumplings with your dip of soy sauce, chilies, whatever. 
Um, but they usually have a big, um, like a samovar full of mian pang, which is like the, the noodle cooking water, because most people want to have a sort of broth with their meal. Um, and this is something that Westerners completely don't get. And I think it's probably because, firstly, soups are not essential to a Western meal. Um, the soups that we favor tend to be thicker blended soups. Um, so they, they're more full-bodied. And... Um, and I, I think, you know, West, many Cantonese restaurants in London, not so much now, they used to always have these wonderful li tang, the soup of the day, these tonic soups I was talking about. Westerners would never order them. They would always order the, you know, crab and sweet corn soup. <laughs> um, and I wonder whether people think Westerners think they're just not good value. It's just like water. It's just liquid. That was the point. It's somehow not satisfying. But it's a different sort of satisfaction. It's the satisfaction of comfort and of rinsing the palate and so on. So, um, yeah, and, I, and certainly since my own palate became kind of sinusized, I just, I really love soup and I often make soup. And if I'm making noodles, then I might, if I'm making dandan noodles, for example, I often have a bowl full of the noodle broth because the dandan is very spicy and very dry and then you have this this little broth with it and it's just comforting. Yeah, I completely agree. In fact, you had a passage in the book where you make um, kind of such a soup for your Chinese friends and they really appreciate it. I remember once going to a lot of effort to making a kind of soup uh, like that uh, for some of my Western friends and they really didn't get it. They thought the rest of the meal is that, and actually I spent more time on the soup and actually probably more money um, than anything else. And And perhaps I had once, I think, an Italian consomme type thing, which was the closest that I'd, I'd had it, um, where the sort of soup was the star, but it was certainly not uh, not the same way. And and I wonder, was that in restaurants here in London, we have a slightly similar um, issue with uh, vegetables. So you had you might have a really beautiful Chinese broccoli, a kailan or a thing, and it's expensive, it's almost as expensive, but it is as expensive as the meat dish because it's treated it's cooked as well, if not better, and it's considered sort of of equal importance. Um, and yet I know a lot of my friends are kind of like, why is that one so much more expensive? Let's just order another roast meat dish. Why not? And I said, well, that's not going to give you the bad, you know, what you would just want to eat, just meat and maybe a bit, of, a bit of your rice. So there's kind of that interesting thing. And I think it's perhaps similar with the soup. You don't feel you get value. Or maybe you don't have your mind is not uh, attuned to the same way of it. And I think about the vegetables as a segue also. I hadn't fully understood until I read your book um, some of the, I guess what I call the culture wars involved with this. And I'm, I'm thinking about knife skills and um, the small slither food that you often get in Chinese cooking. And I hadn't appreciated that. Yeah, I could see how back in the day, you know, there was a sort of propaganda about, oh, you're not getting value for money. You don't understand what you're eating. This is just small food and they're trying to cheat you in that kind of propaganda uh, wars without realizing, well, if you're going to eat with um, chopsticks, the beauty of um, knife skills, how they're evenly cooked. I, re I remember sort of thinking, oh, I'm just going to really speed through. My knife skills are only average. And it was like, oh, this is really much harder to cook and much less satisfactory. I now know why they, <laughs> they all do it uh, within that. Um, so I was just interested um, in that, what you feel about that kind of cultural part of it and the understanding maybe wrapping in the knife skills um and that misunderstanding and, and how much of it i guess was a almost not quite purposeful cultural war but some of that and i guess some of that really 
we have a legacy of that today. There's some things we are that are referred to, sort of the cheap food, where we had with MSG, um, vegetables, and all of that. It seems to be a, maybe an ongoing kind of cultural uh, exchange type of uh, thing going on. Yeah. Well, I think just to pick up on your point about vegetables, I mean, I think if you order vegetables in an English restaurant, for example, they're usually these tiny apologetic little dishes on the side. But as you said, like a Chinese dish of vegetables is a proper dish. You know, it's quite a lot of it. And it's part of the balance of a meal. And I think that that's one thing I'm always keen to talk about. Again, this thing about Chinese food being about health and balance, that a Chinese meal is not really complete if you only have the sort of sexy, tasty, exciting dishes. You always need the neutral, the pale, the understated um, to balance them and to make a nice meal and to make you feel good afterwards, because that's the point of eating as well as pleasure. And um, so, yes, um, uh, and I, I find that, um, yeah, I mean, it's sad, really, that people don't appreciate this dimension. But again, I think it's about information and education, because once you understand the purpose of it, um, then it becomes very important. Yes. And the thing about food being cut in small pieces. So the Chinese have largely had the habit of cutting food into small pieces um, for about 2000 years since the Han Dynasty. And um for that reason, um, all the cutting is in the kitchen. So the kitchen was a place where you had violence and knives and slaughter and chopping. And at table, it was very civilized. You didn't have clashing metal. You had your nice delicate chopsticks and you would eat food that was already cut um, for consumption or it was soft enough to be picked up with chopsticks. And um, the habit of eating food cut into small pieces and the habit of eating with chopsticks have kind of grown up together um, and obviously they're completely connected because you can't eat um, you can't really eat a lamb chop with chopsticks very easily I mean it's better to have it cut up in small pieces yeah and when I was doing research for this book so I was reading some of the early accounts by Europeans of their first encounters with Chinese food and a lot of them would say things like all the food was cut into very small pieces and um, I had no idea what I was eating. And um, and they didn't because, you know, you see a sliver of something. What is it? I mean, is it chicken? Is it pork? What is it? And um, so it just struck me that um, this, as you say, it kind of fed into all kinds of Western suspicions about Chinese food. Because there was this idea that the Chinese, who, as we know, are very adventurous eaters and eat lots of exciting ingredients, but that they were eating all this terrifying exotica. And that if you went for a meal in San Francisco's Chinatown, maybe they would serve you rat or snake and you wouldn't know it because they would chop it up. So there was this kind of, you know, on one hand, a great affection for Chinese food and all these chop sueys and those early dishes. Um, but also this kind of suspicion of the Chinese as being very other with very different eating habits. And um, and I think the fact that the food was not recognizable like an English roast chicken um, played into people's anxieties about it. Of course, nobody would give you a snake if you were paying for chicken because snake is much more expensive yeah. than luxury. But um, yeah, um, so, and, and I think also just in terms of character that you know in the west having great hunks of meat and roast turkeys and whole bits of beef um is seen as very kind of macho and manly so you know it's the bloke cooking on a barbecue or the male head of the household carving up a large chunk of meat at the table 
Um, and so by contrast, maybe Chinese food looks a bit kind of effete and effeminate, you know, it's all very delicate and cut up. But from a Chinese point of view, actually, it's, it's rather different because um, eating great hunks of meat was things that the uncivilized barbarians beyond the Great Wall did. And to be Chinese was to eat food that had been transformed by cooking, by knife skills into something that was, was very sort of civilized and elegant. And so, you know, the, the, the hulk, hulking great roast actually seems a bit kind of archaic to Chinese So it's not that either is right or wrong, but I think it's really interesting to, to just consider how, how perceptions are different and how these created, you know, you know, enabled and encouraged, you know, prejudice. You, know, you have that phrase in your book, the sort of criticism, which I guess roughly translates as simple and monotonous. Oh, yeah, your Chinese people. I mean, so many Chinese people are, will dismiss the cooking of the entire Western world as very monotonous, very simple. It's like almost a catchphrase. And I, so many Chinese people will just say, oh, you just eat hamburgers and sandwiches, don't you? And it's, it, it's obviously hilarious for me because I know that also lots of Westerners think that Chinese people just eat chickens. Yeah. And you talk about... Um, uh, the sort of blending of ingredients and all of this. And the, the one of the most extraordinary stories you recount, and I hadn't realized this was a thing, was around pomelo pith. Um, how did you, did you know about this from a while back? How did that story is? And what's so great about pomelo pith? You kind of think, okay, well, that's an ingredient which goes straight in the bin, uh, but actually not. Yeah, so, so pomelo, I mean, I know lots of British people don't seem to even know what it is, but it's like a huge kind of citrus fruit um, with a slightly bitter taste. And um, yeah, so the Cantonese, I think only the Cantonese, um, they use the pith, the white cottony, pretty tasteless pith of this fruit, which is very thick, um, to make a dish. And um, the first time I had it was with a Cantonese friend of mine, Rose, who I actually wrote a whole chapter about in, the, in my previous book. Um, and she took me to a restaurant. We had this completely delicious dish and it was these kind of domes of something lovely and soft and mashy and a gorgeous sort of really opulent gravy scattered with shrimp eggs it's so delicious and it turned out it was pomelo pith and um it's a it's a real cantonese thing and that's mandarin pronunciation by the way but um yeah so um so what they do is they they peel or burn off the, the thin, shiny outer layer of the fruit. And then they they take off, you know, they, they breed special pomelos, which don't have much actual fruit peel pith. And then the pith, you know, is tasteless. It's a bit bitter. So they soak it for several days. They change the water. Then, you know, it's a long process. And then they cook it in a fabulous broth made with meat and seafood and um, for, for hours. And um, eventually you get this very um, tasty and satisfying dish. And, um, and what is so fascinating for me about this is how, you know, the Chinese are so creative with cooking. And it's just like, it's this very analytical approach. And I, I wrote about this in the book that I think that in most cultures, people will ask themselves the question, is this edible? Is this food edible? Is this, in, is this sort of thing edible? And for the Chinese, I think the question is slightly different. It's like, how can I make this edible? Like, what, 
what what is this plant or this animal part like what what does it have going for it and what what's wrong with it and can we sort of bring out these qualities and get sort of modify or, or suppress the um the deficiencies and this is what they do and and so you have all these ingredients like um like pomelopip so unpromising mm-hmm. i mean everyone else just puts it in the bin and yet with a bit of imagination and technique you have a fantastic dish and um and i find this so inspiring and i think um everyone should look to the chinese for creativity because um from a i mean for partly because it's fun and it's it's dazzling and it's delicious um, but also it's so resourceful and at a time when we're feeling all these environmental constraints and we have to eat more creatively and um, you know some chefs in the west are trying to think of ways to eat insects and, and so on the Chinese are way ahead I mean there are so many ingredients and, and, and but not just that just this approach this creative approach to um making delicious things out of anything yeah and one of the principles or ideas i got from reading your book is that you kind of can improve approach all ingredients like that so you can have something which is more or less seems perfect so don't do that much with it to bring out its essence so you have something like polymopith which you're going to have to do a lot with and with that idea that we're going to get the most of what we have actually all of those sets of techniques come through from something where you likely get the sort of soul or the essence of the food because that's where it is to something where you have to cook it, source it, technique it sort of over and over to really get the most of it. And I found that the way you described that and put in your writing was um, was really wonderful. And then I picked up, which I'd heard earlier as well, the famed Catalan Spanish chef, um, Farron Andrea, which is probably considered one of the best Western chefs over the last few decades. His comments about how he thought that actually Mao was one of the most influential figures in food history because of how he sent uh, so many chefs or so many people uh, to work in the fields and how that changed um, Chinese cuisine, at least in the sort of more modern era. So I was kind of interested in how you thought that perhaps Mao was an influence and and maybe how Chinese cuisine in, say, the last 50, 10 or 20 years has sort of uh, developed um, uh, post that era. Yeah, well, I suppose, I mean, the thing is that um, the Chinese were were pioneers of so many things that are now um, extremely interesting or crazies in the West. So things like the obsession with terroir, with the origin of ingredients, with seasons, 2,000 years in China, making imitation meat foods out of plants, goes back to the 10th century in China at least, Um, your restaurants go back six you know six centuries before paris there was a sort of sophisticated restaurant scene in hangzhou in the jiangnan region so china is this absolute treasure house of of gastronomical thinking ideas about health cooking techniques and it's tragically neglected in the west and this is i think largely for historical reasons because china was pretty much you know it was um, turning itself upside down, it was closed. So the whole of the 20th, I mean, not the whole, but I mean, a lot of the 20th century, there was this big period when China was turning in on itself and, you know, wars and revolutions and invasions and cultural revolution and, um, and you know, emerging at the end of it, being a sort of quite secluded nation, quite poor, etc. 
And um, so for that reason, I think it's just, you know, people, as Farhan Adria said, so memorably, it's just that the outside world has just not really been aware of what China has to offer. And, um, and it's still the case that Chinese, I mean, I think it's changing, frankly, but it's still the case that Chinese food, by and large, is immensely popular all over the world, but it's mostly seen as quite cheap and lowbrow and not terribly healthy. I think most people, you know, most people or a lot of people would understand why you would perhaps sometimes spend a lot of money on Japanese food or Spanish food or French food, but they don't really see Chinese cuisine as being a sort of big hitting, serious cuisine, um, which is completely mad. I mean, it's like, yeah, and I think this is just historical reasons. So, um, and that it is actually partly what motivates me to write because um, it's been, the, considering how interesting the subject is, um, it, it's not been very much reflected in, in Western food writing. I mean, th there are some very good books, but there's not many compared with the scale of the country and the cuisine. Yes, and I was reading, um, uh, I think, something you'd written earlier about how hard it was to get your first book published because there wasn't that much um, interest from standard publishers. It's like, oh, why would we want a book? Uh, why would we want a book on that, which kind of reflects it? Um, I had a question in from a listener, which kind of riffs on that, which is, again, around all of this uh, cultural appreciation, cultural appropriation um, uh, dialogue, which is happening in the media. And one of my comments is, is particularly around food, there's always been this exchange, right? So the chili pepper started off um, in the Americas and food has always traveled as this way of cultural dialogue. And it's a little bit like why my origin dish is where it is. You know, my mom's dish travels wherever my mom is. So it's always my mom's cooking wherever she, wherever she is and that's a sort of a unique thing I think around food and it's also interesting it's kind of reflected a little bit in how laws have been developed in the sense that you know rightly or wrongly you can have copyright for um, stories and films and you have patents for uh, ideas and technology uh, but recipes have actually always been considered uh, something which is kind of like a public good we we exchange it because it's always changing because you can't as often you can't really say well where is that whole source thing from where a recipe uh, comes about? A little bit like chicken rice. It kind of developed across a lot of people at a lot of time um, because of that. And so with, within that and where I guess um, some of this dialogue has gone, do you have any thoughts about how we can best understand cultural exchange around, particularly I guess around food and some of the uh, dialogue around appreciation versus appropriation? Well, I suppose that, I mean, the first thing to say is that Basically, all food is fusion food. Mm -hmm. And, you know, human beings have been exchanging ingredients and techniques and ideas for ages. I mean, you know... Thousands of years. Yeah. I mean, like, in China, the food of North China, um, so many ingredients, not to mention, I mean, you know, just, just a couple, like sheep meat and wheat and flour milling technology, which is basically the basis of northern Chinese food, um, and big garlic all came in along the Silk Road um, from the Western lands in ancient times. In more modern times, the chili, <laughs> and I mean, you can't imagine Sichuanese food without the chili. Um, so it's all fusion. And I think that exchange um, and adaptation is a kind of human inevitability. 
But I think, I mean, the whole debate about cultural appropriation is is very much about, um, I, I think from most people don't really think that you shouldn't make a dish from another culture. It's about treating other cultures with respect and it's about having fair representation in the media, in the restaurant industry. So this is why it has struck such a raw nerve, this unfairness, like why do you only have white people writing about everything in the media? And um, how can you just, like, like, you know, there were all these controversies in New York about there was one restaurant that opened by someone who was not Chinese doing a Chinese restaurant and saying that it was going to be healthy Chinese food and implying that ordinary Chinese food was not very healthy. So, I mean, that was just offensive to Chinese people, understandably. So I think that um, the sort of, the, the, the issues raised by the whole furore about cultural represent, uh, cultural appropriation are very legitimate. And I think that societies are going to some way to address this. I mean, that you're definitely seeing greater diversity in the cookbooks published and, and in the food writing world, for example. Um, but I think for most people, um, the, the solution to this is not that you should only stay in your own lane and, you know, I mean, I, I think, um, and of course, it doesn't really make any sense anyway, because I mean, just for example, with Chinese food, it's like, you know, okay, you could say, well, you have to be Chinese to write about Chinese food, but then, you know, is it okay if you're Cantonese, British writing about Sichuan food? Or do, do you have to be, I mean, it, it's sort of, and then how do you, how would you write a book about the whole of Chinese food? Because you can't be, do it. yeah. <laughs> so it's sort of, it, it, and, and I think also the whole notion of like, um, who owns culture and what is authentic once you start examining it under a microscope it's really complicated yeah so so I think it's just you know it's about honest discussion of fairness and respect really and one of my favorite chapters was actually the one where so I think we've commented on it but you know when I go back to um, Asia a lot of Asians are quite dismissive about the whole of uh, western food as it is vice versa but the Shanghainese restaurant which does its own versions of things like uh, Russian soup and that I hadn't appreciated that was such uh, a long history of it, which actually uh, makes um, complete sense um, when uh, when you think about it. I mean, is that a restaurant you go back to uh, much in, in Shanghai? Would you like to tell a little bit of its story? Yeah, so that's uh, which is, um, so it means like, means German. It was originally a German restaurant and which means big, but big cuisine was the word at the time sort of, late 19th, early 20th century for Western food. And um, so it's called the Dada Western Food, you know, restaurant. And um, it's in Shanghai, and I can't remember exactly when it was founded, but I think it was just before 1900 or something. And it was founded by a German at a time when um, Shanghai was full of foreigners. Um, and it was, you know, these foreign concessions and um, so on, very international. And um, But the really interesting thing about it is that um, it kind of survived um, the revolution, the cultural revolution. And, um, you know, very early on, it was taken over by a Chinese businessman. And um, if you go there now, of course, all the staffs are Chinese and you have um, Chinese chefs in the kitchen who specialize in Western food. And um, it, it serves this really interestingly curated West menu, Chinese menu of Western food. So the signature dishes, dishes are, like you mentioned, the Lawson Tang, which is a it's sort of, um, it, it sounds like Russian soup. And it's the local version of borscht. 
which is made with cabbage and um, potato and beef and not beetroot, which they don't really have there. And um, then they also do things like um, a, a kind of local version of a schnitzel, but made with pork, not veal, and served with la jangyo, which means hot soy sauce, but which is a local version of Worcester sauce. And then there are also, um, like, there's a sort of crab dish, which is a crab in a sort of cheesy, creamy sauce in the crab shop, but it's made with a freshwater Chinese crab. Anyway, I went there just out of curiosity, and I thought it was going to be serving horrendously bastardized um, so-called Western food. And actually, it was really charming. Yeah. And it was just like, it was full of Shanghainese families. It was a, it's a real institution. It goes back more than 100 years. And it's part of Shanghainese culture. These old dishes, which, and the whole menu, you'd never find that menu in a real restaurant in the West because this is Western food on Chinese terms, curated by Chinese people, really. And... Um, but the food is nicely cooked, it's fresh, and um, it's, um, yeah, so I went there expecting just to be curiosity, and it was rather charming, and um, so I have been back, and yeah, and it was funny, because I've talked to customers there, and they see it as part of their heritage. Yeah, and they see it as really authentic. Yeah, yeah it's authentic, and it's not the only one, there's another one called the Red House, in the former French concession, which does things like French onion soup with a bit of toast with melted cheese on top and um instead of snails in garlic butter they have local clams in garlic butter served in that sort of pan so um yeah and i just for me it's it's just really interesting to to as an example of how cultural appropriation works both ways both ways yeah great well we'll last um few questions uh, one is um if you were to open a restaurant say in london you had a magic wand what sort of restaurant it would be i think I thought about this, and I think if I could magic it, um, I would do those um, uh, Buddhist temple restaurants. So I was taken to one or two when I was I was growing up, which do these amazing, essentially tofu dishes, but they're all so-called fake meats or whatever. And I remember being presented one, uh, was just like, well, this is a roast duck. And I was like, oh, this is just not going to be good, but I was just going to eat it because I've been taken there. And it was, um, and it was amazing. Um, uh, so something which is sort of skilled and sort of quite fun, and I think would quite go down well in the London scene and not understood that this whole fake food thing has been going on for a couple of thousand years in a really um, high class way. Or I don't know, maybe something somehow seasonal British Chinese or that. But what restaurant would you transplant if you could with a magic wand? Uh, well, it would be something along the lines of the Dragon Well Manor in Hangzhou, which I wrote a lot about in the book. Basically, I would need the magic wand because what I would need is a sort of Chinese farm yeah. in <laughs> London, right? Um, with a bamboo grove and ponds where I could grow water bamboo and water chestnuts and, and uh, have freshwater fish and shrimp and, um, you know, rice fields. We're <laughs> getting carried away here. But, um, but I think the point of it would be to do really fine Chinese food made with the best ingredients. Um, because this is another of these weird things that people don't associate Chinese food, people in the West, with fine ingredients. It's, again, this thing about it being cheap. And it's really unusual to find Chinese restaurants serving free-range meat or you know organic vegetables or all the things that are quite normal or foraged foods, quite normal in Western restaurants. And... Um, and it's such a misperception because, as we've sort of already touched on this, 
I mean, the Chinese have been, Chinese gourmets have been obsessed with the quality of their ingredients forever, really. I mean, Chinese, good Chinese cooking starts with good ingredients. So my restaurant would be um, really showcasing this, that Chinese food is the best food made with the best ingredients and not only cooking skills, but it, it makes you feel wonderful and it's in tune with the seasons and the cosmos and everything like that. Great. Um, so now if you're game, we'll do a, like a short section of kind of underrated, overrated, or you can sort of pass and we go neutral. So I do like one word or phrase or idea and you can give a, a, a quick comment about whether you think it might be underrated or overrated um so the first one i guess an easy one is milk oh well, overrated yeah personally i just don't like milk i love i absolutely love cheese and butter and everything like that but um but i i suppose i'm the reason i'm saying that is because it's not the be all and end all um and of course you know i would draw, draw your attention <laughs> yeah the wonderful world of soy milk and tofu and and also which is a far more sustainable alternative yeah. I should have specified cow's milk over soy milk, but yes. Um, cake. Um, cake. Um, <laughs> Might be correctly related. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how cake really is rated. Right. I would say that cake is very, very delightful, but it's not the be all and end all. But I don't know that anyone would say that it was. <laughs> well, I guess one comment would be um, most of Chinese cuisine probably doesn't have a big cake tradition although uh my mum would partly disagree because of all of the the quays and the things you get in in uh malaysian singaporean uh food uh but obviously in western cuisine it's it's very much like so um yeah maybe correctly weighted how about um alcohol but maybe we could go wine wine well i would say overrated just because i'm far more interested in food (laughs) i I don't drink i mean i love i love the tasting and exploring different wines and whiskeys and things but i just don't drink very much so i can quite happily go for a long time without alcohol and definitely food is more important yeah i've been drinking uh, less and less and i think i i really don't like um you actually talk about it in the food that, that a lot of um sort of chinese celebrations have all of this huge drinking culture bit of it and then by about round three you, ca- you can't remember any of the food anyway which seems a real shame uh uh with a lot of that um and then um sea cucumber overrated underrated well in the west underrated yeah i mean i i love it so um it's one of these tech weird exotic texture foods as far as westerners are concerned and um you know it doesn't have any taste it, but it has this voluptuous sort of wobbly texture and it's a bit sort of sticky and soft and a bit crisp and it's quite wonderful great um and then last one in the series um durian in the West, underrated. <laughs> I mean, I just find it completely thrilling. Um, it, it's like um, I, I really adore stinky, smelly cheeses in a state of advanced dishevelment. And um, durian is a bit like that, really. It's got sort of a smell that really gets under your skin and is a little bit disturbing and a bit delicious at the same time. Yeah, I love it. I've loved it from early. And it's always that one of the things is like, oh, are you going to like it? Are you not going to like it? I even like the smell. I remember I was laughed at because as a child I described it as a perfume which most people don't think but there was that just complex aromas which came from it which I uh, which I really enjoyed um so last couple of questions um this is I guess most focused on um your writing and I guess your research and I was interested to know what your sort of writing 
process or even writing days because it's obviously to my mind deeply researched obviously you've had um you know lived experience um you know going to places talking to chefs doing the cooking and, and being trained and yet at least to my mind uh, your prose is very stylish it's also very uh, clear um it comes across food writing is quite hard to come across the sort of joy or deliciousness and texture of all of that uh, and that uh, comes across and you're you know on the level of the sentence your, your sentences are, are really super great so I was kind of interested in like how you kind of write do you think a lot about structure or form or does it happen do you come across sort of you take a lot of notes and it all gels together is there anything you'd like to share about your writing process um well I think it's a little chaotic to be frank. <laughs> uh, but I mean the one thing that I really do religiously is I take a lot of notes and all my Chinese friends get used to this eccentricity and they'll find it quite funny but I mean I just you know I write everything down because this is material and in my books there are often passages particularly descriptions so like when if you write a description of a place when you're in it like what it smells like what it sounds like and what it tastes like then it's going to have an immediacy that is quite hard to recapture so the I, the more I write down in the field in the moment the more I thank myself later and um, although obviously it's all very rough cut but quite a lot of phrases and thoughts and even paragraphs will end up in the finished books from this kind of field work um and then i suppose that um you know with writing um it, it's not a, a terribly conscious thing but i think i have a real sense of what it sounds like and when it works and when it doesn't work and it's a question of um you know repeating sentences again and again till they till they sound right and sometimes it's very easy and it really flows and sometimes it's a nightmare and it's, I want to give up. And, um, and then with the structure as well, I mean, I found this a real challenge because having done several cookbooks, cookbooks structurally are relatively easy because I think that a fairly con conventional structure works well. So you have chapters on different sorts of food and you have head notes and, you know, the only long bit of writing is the introduction really. Um, but this kind of book, it's like, it can be anything. So how on earth are you going to structure this huge flood of ideas and thoughts? And so, um, and it's a bit scary at first because you've agreed to write this book and you don't know how it's going to work out. Um, but, but again, it's just like, uh, it's just a question of, of applying yourself and just, uh, and sometimes taking a break and doing something else. And I don't understand how it works. It's a, like an instinct for, um, sort of knowing when something feels right, when it's getting boring, when it's when the argument is incoherent. And then also, you know, I'm lucky to have a good editor. So with this book, like the one chapter that was, the, I had such a lot to say, which is the one about eating exotica and endangered species. And it's quite, um, you know, I really wanted to get the tone right, which is to kind of be very frank and honest um, and fair in, you know, and balanced in the way I wrote it. And um, my editor thought it was a bit chaotic at first. And um, so I went away and had put a lot more work into redoing it. But yeah, but it's not, I wouldn't say it's a, you know, there's some rational elements, but a lot of it is just sort of, you know, inst it's like just recognizing when, when the proportion is right. And that it's practice. And I, I'm guessing you write your notes by hand because you probably do some characters as well as English in your notes or you have that turned to like 
tapping on a phone or an iPad or things? No, 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 very much paper. Um, because as you say, um, I have to write notes in both English and Chinese because a lot of I can't be specific about things unless I write them in Chinese, like the names of ingredients and dishes and people's names and all that sort of stuff. And also sometimes they do drawings and diagrams. And I guess there's a dialect that they might have to say, well, and these are the characters and it's like a whole new technique specific to that yeah, regional yeah, yeah. thing. So they've got almost their own uh, language around it. Yeah. And also other people write in my books too. So, right. you know, sometimes someone will explain something and I remember once a man in a tea shop in Chengdu wrote a whole page about, you know, different sort of street snacks in Chengdu. So, um, and I, I, I like, also the great thing about a notebook is that it has no value. It's like if I had everything on an iPad, it's something someone might nick. Right, yeah. But a scruffy notepad covered in oil is not very big thing. <laughs> yeah, so. But a huge amount of in intangible value. And I guess, because the structure of your book, I think really, uh, flows as well because you've got the chapters but you've got the kind of meta chapters uh, above um, but you're saying that actually that structure probably came sort of midway through the process you didn't think oh I can do sort of history we can start with fire and grain and we go and we have a section of you know techniques and we end on you know sort of meta philosophy of food ideas it's sort of like oh we had these essays and then through that process you can see this this would be a pleasing structure for it to work. Yeah, so I mean, I did have some conception, you know, that the, the, I think, I can't remember when, but I mean, I think, yeah, quite early on, probably when I did the proposal, I did have the idea that it was going to be sort of about a dish, with each dish a theme. But then I think sometime, some chapters clearly had to be standalone chapters, others sometimes divided off into two chapters or made into one. So it was sort of, um, uh, yeah, so there were, it, it sort of evolved as I went along and um, and the final structure just happened at the end, really. I mean, it was a whole process of rearranging and there were one or two that could have gone in different places, but it just has to have a sort of harmony to it. It just has to fit and not, and not feel laboured. It has to just feel sort of inevitable. And is there a kind of missing essay or chapter which you thought, oh, this would be quite good, but doesn't quite fit? Are there lots of things which didn't make the cut for some future work? Um, actually, I think I got everything I wanted in this one. So, um, you know, I'm, of course, I'm going to write many more books. <laughs> but yeah, this one, it ended up feeling just about the right sort of, I did manage to put in, yeah, what I wanted to say. Excellent. And when you write, do you, are you a morning person, evening person, does it matter? And you, are you short bursts, one to three hours, some people, or can you write? the whole day or was it kind of chaotic as in the sense it it kind of just depends yeah I just don't know so I mean in general I'm on better form in the morning but I also find it really hard getting down to work <laughs> yeah <laughs> and then but I I just find I mean the whole thing about writing and I think many writers find this is that it's elusive it's not something that you completely control so you can put the time in but sometimes you will write well and easily and sometimes you can just see what's wrong with the structure of a chapter. Sometimes you can't. You can spend hours just banging your head against a brick wall. And I think one just has to accept that it's something a bit mysterious. Um, but, um, you know, it's not... It, you, you just you have to put the time in and then somehow... somehow I mean, I think with, with my earlier books, you know, with almost all of them, I had major crises when I just wanted to give up and I thought, I can't do this. With my previous, with my memoir, Shots with Citron Pepper, 
I got so despairing about it that I nearly deleted the whole thing and all the backups and handed back the advance because I thought I couldn't do it. But, the, the, but by now I know that when I have these moments of despair, that somehow, somehow you just find a way through the woods and it's just by having it in your mind. Sometimes taking a break, doing something different, but in my experience, it's a sort of, it's just a work in process, but it is a bit scary because you have this expectation you're going to finish and then sometimes you don't know how you're going to do it. Yeah, exactly. Um, playwrights have a couple of uh, techniques which we, we talk about, which are kind of cousin to those. Uh, so one one is whenever you've written the first draft or whatever draft, uh, one rule is you, you just delete the first 10 pages because it takes you a while to get in and just don't worry about it. You can always come back to it, but just don't worry. Just delete them and then get on to your next, get on to your next draft. Some people throw do throw away whole drafts and then write another draft, but then refer to it. But it's this whole idea that you are going to have a panic. It isn't going to work, but actually it's okay. Whatever you do, you, you start getting things and it will it will be there and it will be uh, it will be better. That's a kind of other thing. And there's one um, one one which went is that um, there's a sort of adage within some playwrights that it is kind of uh, somewhat painful to write, uh, depending on how you write and where you come from. And so there is this bit of like, actually, you do lock yourself away and you get it out and you don't worry too much because it's it's um, you need to f get yourself into a position where you force yourself to write where it comes out. Not everyone's like that, uh, obviously, within that. But there is that some things because there is this fear and because you get these difficult patches that you have to you have to push through. But it will be OK. And that's what we. That's yes. What we tell but I also don't like I mean, I'm much happier when I'm around people and doing things mm. in a team. And I actually. You know, I don't really like this whole thing about being alone at a desk, <laughs> but then you have to do it. But yeah, and that's, you know, so then when you have a big deadline and you have to just lock yourself away, it's pretty ghastly. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, that's why some of the more latest theatre work has been more collaborative, partly because, yeah, writing alone is not, uh, yeah, it's not for everyone. Great. So final kind of question, two-part question is... um. What are your current projects and things that you're working on? I know there's going to be uh, a book tour uh, starting soon, second half of the year. You have your food tours, which I think are ongoing. But are there any other projects? And then the sort of segue from that is, do you have any um, advice uh, for people? I guess this can be broad advice about how to live your life. It could be advice about uh, eating uh, Chinese food or being a writer. Um so that, so current projects and any life advice or eating advice you'd like to share? Um, well, so current projects, yeah. So this book, you know, I'll be doing things around this book for a while, but then I will have to start the next one. And I just have several concurrent, I mean, the next one will be a cookbook, but I have, you know, I tend to have lots of things on the go and they will bear fruit at different times. But so I'm collecting material for other books that may not come to light of day very quickly. And are you going to tackle all of the great major Chinese cuisines and then as many as the regional ones as you can get through. So, you know, there's at least 117 plus books. That well, you I could go on. This This is a lifelong project because yeah. it's endlessly interesting and there are all these different angles. And also because I enjoy actually the narrative writing as well. And this has reminded me there's so much I'd like to say with that. So um, I'm definitely not doing some kind of... Um, routine box ticking exercise I have to really I, I, I want to really um, sort of have a connection to a place or a subject and feel really involved and make friends there and have a kind of personal uh, involvement before I write a book I don't want to just rush in and do something token 
Um, and um, yeah, life advice, I would never really think I'm a good person to give life advice, but I suppose that I just, I, I mean, the thing that I find so rewarding is just when you open yourself up to another culture and you really step outside your own point of view, it's tremendously illuminating and life enhancing um, because of course, of course, I have not only been learning about Chinese food and culture all these years, I have also been learning that there are other ways of looking at my own culture. And, um, and I think that um, there's not just one way of looking at the world. Um, there's not one point of view that's valid. Um, and I think this is incredibly important <laughs> to recognize, you know, to just um, to sort of see that many things are kind of, you know, relative and um, I mean, not everything, but um, but yeah, so I think that um, that that is a very interesting consequence. Oh. And, I, and I think it's yeah, so I would encourage people to be open to new experiences and to, um, you know, rethinking their own assumptions about everything too okay well with that uh thank you very much the book invitation to a banquet uh should be out in the uk at the very end of august and then in the us um a few weeks later in november in november okay a little yeah. a little while later um you can catch uh fuchsia maybe on some book tour uh in the second half of the year and into next year so look out uh look out for that and i highly recommend the book Thank you. Lovely talking to you. Thank you very much. Hope you enjoy the show. Do like and subscribe as it helps others find the podcast.